God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the wisdom you give us, and we ask for your help interpreting it. We ask you open it to our hearts and open up our hearts to your word. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. Well, it should be an easy one. I hope you kept all that in your head. What could possibly go wrong? Hello, everyone. Um, I am pleased to say that we're coming back to our series in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, uh, after finishing our jaunt through the Transformation series. Um, and we're picking up here at uh, 1 Corinthians 11. And I, I wanted you to know, before we get in, how much I flirted with the idea of spending today's uh, today's talk in the, in the verses 17 and on, all the Lord's Supper stuff, and ignoring all that textured, nuanced, interesting detail about men and women and haircutting earlier on. Because you shouldn't get drunk during communion is a very easy message to sell. That's a nice, sturdy limb to go out on. Can't go in trouble with that. But the crunchy part of the chapter really is, for us in our generation, verses 2 to 16. Let's be honest with each other. It's a passage about men and about women, about the way they relate to each other, about the way they relate to God, and that means two things. The first is that every Bible-believing man and woman who wants to be consistent in their faith has to engage passages like this and become comfortable with how they understand it. It does no one any good or honor to gloss over the hard bits of Scripture. So we have to go straight at them. The second thing is it means that just about anything that is said on this passage is likely to irritate half the men and women hearing it. Oh well. Now this is a key passage when we're talking about men and women. You see there are what we call, well there's this kind of two camps on this issue in scripture. You have what we call the complementarians if we're using the big fat-headed theological talk. Um, and that's the idea that men and women are created equal but they complement each other. They're different in many particular ways. They're gifted differently, and that ultimately men have a certain amount of authority over their wives in that relationship. And then there are what you call the egalitarians, who believe that men and women are equally valued before God, but they tend to have the same, they're not substantially gifted differently, they have the same roles and authority. And there are those who may be visiting the church for the first time who have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, so bear with me, just a little bit of housekeeping. Different Baptist churches have different convictions on this idea. And if you've been paying attention to this church for a while, you probably know where Sunnybank falls on that spectrum. But it's not decidedly one way or the other. So whichever way we look at this passage today, I am likely to have a decent chance of upsetting some folks. If I upset you, I'd love to talk to you after. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's engage this passage. Now that's a particularly ironic disclaimer because I really actually think that 1 Corinthians 11 is about unity more than about authority. And it's a bit appeal that it can be such a divisive text if I'm saying it's actually about church unity. Indeed, that the purpose of the letter from Paul to the Corinthians is a, mainly a reprimand for that church being so fractious, so broken up into little camps and groups. The purpose of the church is to be an island in the world, to be seen as different from the world outside, but unified and loving internally, loving to one another. Now this, this letter was launched back in chapter 1 after Paul's greeting at verse 10, and he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you and that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Paul is writing this letter to unify the church. So I tend to take this chapter, the beginning of chapter 11 particularly, this talk about headship and hair and head coverings as a message about unity at its heart. Now context is one of our best tools when dealing with tricky passages like this. So what about the more immediate context of 1 Corinthians 11? Now back when we studied chapter 10, you might remember that was about whether or not believers can safely eat food sacrificed to idols. Or if there's something blasphemous about that, something wrong. And Paul's conclusion is that food sacrificed to idols, to, to false gods, doesn't turn the, the food sacrifice into something poisonous or, or itself mystically broken in some way. It's just still food. There really is only the one God. But if you eat that and a younger brother or sister sees you and they misinterpret, they can be caused to stumble. If someone mistakes that for acceptance of that false God, then you've done a terrible thing by them. Paul says, back in chapter 10, verse 23, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good but the good of others. And then later in verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. You see the message of unity coming through in this whole book. What about a spoiler for next week about the message of 1 Corinthians 12? 1 Corinthians 12, 12 says, Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit as to what form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. So, the, so no, even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many, this message of unity again. So as we come now to look at chapter 11, I hope you understand why I take this as more about unity than about marital authority. So let's step through it, and I'll show you what I mean. Verses 1 to 6 go like this. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding the traditions just as I passed them to you, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of, every, the, head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovers, uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she may as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Super clear. So the meaning of head here really is the key to this part of the chapter. The Greek word, which is kephalos, means Head, like your actual physical head, so that's not an awful lot of help. What we're talking about is something metaphorical about the head. What does Paul actually mean when he's comparing the head of Christ to be God and the head of a woman to be a man? Paul's actually using a play on words 
He's talking about the actual head coverings, the actual issues of the, the hair of, of women, and then using this as kind of a play on words to talk about headship in some other way. Now, apparently, there was a spate of women in the Corinthian church who were praying and prophesying with their heads uncovered in church. Paul's a wordsmith. He's talking about women's heads. And he says, the head of a woman is man. What does that mean? What does that mean specifically in this context? Because this is always going to be a metaphor. Paul goes back and forth using head literally and metaphorically in this passage, which is why it seems so confusing if you just read through it about this is the head of this, this is the head of this, you're dishonoring your head, and so on. So you have to try and keep track and intuit this, these meanings, otherwise it gets very funny very fast. Hilarious, actually. In studying these verses, I tried to apply the term consistently as if it's all perfectly literal, and that doesn't work. Remember, verse 3 tells us that the head of a woman is a man, Okay, so if we take the woman's head in verses 5 to 8 and replace it with its meaning, man, it sounds like this. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her man uncovered dishonors her man. And it is the same as having her man shaved. For if a woman does not cover her man, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her man shaved, she should cover her man. That's not terribly helpful. So I may not be certain about some aspects of this passage, but I'm pretty sure this is not meaning to be Paul's last stand on the matter of women shaving their husbands. So by process of elimination, we're going to get there. Let's try and get a bit more sense out of this, and this may require a bit of cultural background. In the ancient Greek world, married women tended to have their hair up and often covered. Unmarried women would leave it down. This is sort of a passive advertising thing. If a, if a lad's parents saw a pretty girl walking past with her hair down, they may talk to her parents about arranging something. If her hair was up, they wouldn't bother. A shaved head on a woman, by contrast, is a, time, a sign of terrible shame because a lady's hair is beautiful and hacking it off or stripping it off is depriving her of her beauty. It's usually not done voluntarily. That's not just an ancient practice. If you've ever seen the excellent series Band of Brothers, a uh, World War II uh, drama series, there's a scene where the Americans have just liberated uh, the town of Eindhoven, uh, the Dutch town of Eindhoven for the Nazis. And as part of the festive mob atmosphere, the local townsfolk are dragging out the women who collaborated with the Nazis and shaving their heads in the streets. This was reasonably common at the time for all the, the liberated nations in Italy and in France and Belgium. Male collaborators shot, women heads shaved as a shaming technique. Same idea extends back to the ancient world. Now, I know I've spent a long time talking about shaving women's heads here, but bear with me, we're getting somewhere. It seems this cultural practice of women covering their heads when they were married and wearing their hair down and uncovered when they were not was starting to be socially challenged, just the way that things were moving at the time. Dr. Bruce Winter, who's one of the, the leading scholars on the book of Corinthians, happened to teach the class for me and Josh at QTC. He uh, suggests that there was a kind of an ancient world feminist movement going on at the time. 
women deciding they were going to wear their hair however they liked and what of it. And that may be so. But whatever the reason, if a married woman walked up to this lectern here to pray for us on a Sunday and conspicuously took off her wedding ring before praying, people would assume there was something wrong with her relationship and her husband should be terribly embarrassed. Something similar to what was happening in the church in Corinth. If there were newcomers to the church and they witnessed that spectacle, they may get a very damning impression of the church indeed. So if we use a little bit of wisdom with the passage we read before, and we substitute what seems likely to be the metaphorical use of head, it sounds more like this. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her husband, and is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Still getting there. So let's jump back for a second. We haven't actually decided what head means. Now, usually if you talk about the head of something, you're talking in English, you mean like company, you're talking about a leadership role, the head cheerleader or something like that. But there's another meaning in English that also extends in Greek. And that is talking about the source of something, a river head, a fountain head, where things flow out from and extend from. And I think that's the meaning of head in this passage. I think that's what Paul means when he's drawing this Illusion, this metaphor. Now, if you looted a streak in a river, you'd assume something had gone further up toward the river's head. Likewise, if the women in the Corinthian church were praying and prophesying, that is, doing the things that draw attention to them, while conspicuously disregarding their cultural symbol that suggested that they didn't respect them, it must be very shaming for the husband. That's bad for the church, that's bad for their relationship, it's fractious, it's not good for church unity. Now, it doesn't quite work the same way for men. If a woman uncovers her head, people in that culture would look upstream from her and shame the man. If a man covers his head, like a married woman does, he's not making a statement about his marriage, he's dressing like a married woman. So someone's going to see that and not go, well, trouble in paradise, something wrong in that relationship. They'd go, this man is dressed like a woman. What are these Christians doing exactly? <laughs> what do they teach them there? So if you're not sold on head quite meaning the, the idea of source rather than authority, then verses 7 to 12 should clarify. Paul goes on to say, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is a man independent of woman, for as woman came from man, so also man is now born of woman. And everything comes from God. Now to get this one out of the way, no one quite knows what Paul's talking about when he says the angels in verse 10. He's addressing something culturally that the Corinthians must have understood, but seems to be lost to history. 
But the idea that woman comes from man is an echo of creation, of the Genesis account. Eve being made out of the rib of Adam, proceeding from him, sourced from him. Adam made first in the image of God, and then Eve made out of Adam. Now, an important note, this is not a mystical statement of hierarchy. This is not saying that men are more glorious and godlike than women are, and women are just kind of a defective photocopy. We know from Genesis 1 that God made man and woman in his image. This is a metaphor of sequence. It's addressing the culture of the time. Christ proceeds from God. God is Christ's head. John 1 tells us that everything that was made through Christ. So Christ proceeds from God, and man proceeds from Christ. And out of man comes woman. What Christ did on the cross reflects glory back to his source, to his head, to his father. And Paul says here, how a man acts will reflect back on Christ. And how a woman acts reflects back on her husband. Now he doesn't quite stop there in verses 11 and 12. He reminds us that men and women aren't so simply defined like that. The first woman was made from man, but ever since then, of woman. So they reflect on each other. They have a mutual obligation to treat each other honorably in the eyes of their community. But everything comes from God. Therefore, this is the core teaching of what Paul is trying to establish here in chapter 11. How we treat one another reflects on the character of our church, on Christ's body. People, younger Christians, will see and they learn bad lessons from it. People who don't know God can see it and get a false idea of who God's people are from it. God's community should reflect his loving spirit, his glory, and his affection for his people. Now, if that wasn't quite enough, verses 13 through 16 might need some cultural translation as well. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that a man, that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? Hair is a glory. For long hair is given. And if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Paul is appealing to nature here, it seems, to prove what he's saying about head coverings. Let's look at this a little closer. Is Paul actually saying that creation itself cries out against dudes with long hair and women with pixie cuts? Is this really an offense to God? If you asked that question in the 1940s, maybe, the answer might have seemed obvious to them. They would have said, yes, obviously, short hair is right for men, long hair is right for women. But we are living in a day that is past the age of the great hair bands, and it certainly seems more like the length of hair is a cultural preference rather than a fact of nature. So either Van Halen rocked so hard they changed the very nature of follicle truth, or Paul must mean something other, first impression. And I want to suggest that Paul is not saying that hair length specifically is godly or shameful, but that the cultural recognition of differences between men and women is natural. These symbolized masculinity and femininity in the time. And you can see the same thing in nature. Lions have manes, lionesses do not. 
the, the peahen, the female peacock, looks like someone spilt bleach on a turkey. The regular peacock looks like someone let Jackson Pollock look loose on one. It is natural for men and women to be distinct from one another. Because distinct from one another. Now, hair length isn't such a big deal today. It's not a particularly distinctly feminine or masculine trait to have long or short hair. Preferences aside. The long hair was considered exclusively feminine at the time that Paul wrote the letter, however. So in that context, it's an absolute. He uses it as a kind of a physical metaphor to repeat his point. To respect those distinctions is righteous because God made us male and female. To disrespect them is to disrespect the creative unity of the male and female that is present through all of God's creation. And Paul finishes his argument in verse 16. It says, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God Otherwise, you might translate that as, I've had enough of talking about this. Any reasonable person can understand what I'm saying. And the other churches get it, and you should too. And that might have been easy for him to say then, but we have to do a lot of work to get quite back to what he's saying. Do you see how the passage is in keeping with this theme of unity that we get all through 1 Corinthians, all through 1 Corinthians? And so not so much about authority in the relationship, between man and woman, or primacy before God. Authority is only mentioned once in this passage, and it's in verse 10, where it says, it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head. Now, if man is the head of a woman, then woman should have authority over man? No, that can't be right. Let's take this as a literal, and congratulations, ladies, you now have a biblical mandate to choose your own hairstyle. But just don't shave the words marriage sucks into the back of it. That's a modern application of this passage. People will think we are all dysfunctional, crazy people in the Christian church if we use our hairstyle to disrespect our marriages. That's what Paul is combating in 1 Corinthians, dysfunction and disunity. Now, for the rest of this chapter, from verses 17 to 34, very straightforward by comparison. And for all Paul's concern about the head coverings and the women's hair, it's this second matter, this abuse of the Lord's Supper, that is really burning his brownies. Paul says, verse 17, In the following directives I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt that there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, is it, not the Lord, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. And as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So it seems that the church in Corinth took a BYO approach to communion. And that meant those who had a lot to be were being a lot more with their O than they needed to. And while, they had, and while those who had nothing to be of their O just sat quietly and starved with the experience. So some were feasting while others were getting fat and drunk. 
Wait. Those ones who were feasting were getting fat and drunk, but some were going hungry entirely. But notice how Paul is not reprimanding them for letting people starve. It's not a matter, matter of charity. It's about the divisions among them that he's upset about, the inequality of the way they are taking this ordinance. It's not that the well-off haven't been generous enough that upsets Paul. It's that they are taking communion in a way that is not promoting their unity as the body of Christ. Paul goes on to explain the communion meal as it was taught to him by Christ and goes on to pronounce then a special judgment on the Corinthians that making a mockery of this ordinance, abusing the Lord's Supper and humiliating those who have no food would bring down God's wrath on them until they correct their ways from verse 27. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep, that is, died. But if you were more discerning with regard to yourselves, we would not have come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. And the solution that Paul gives is very simple. Honor the tradition. When you gather together, eat the Lord's Supper and everyone eat together. Anyone who is particularly hungry, eat before you come along or after you go home. This is this Corinthian sort of pattern emerging again. You have the freedom to eat as much as you like, but don't shame your brothers and sisters who don't have much in the church. Women have the right to do whatever they like with their hair, but don't shame your husbands by wearing it in a way that suggests availability in your culture. Meat sacrificed to idols isn't evil or cursed, and you have the freedom to eat it, but don't eat it if a weaker brother or sister is going to stumble because of it. This is all dangerously close to becoming common sense. And for that reason, these words can be a guide for us today. Now, we don't have a problem with drinking to excess during our communion services, none of the ones that I've been to. But we do use gluten-free bread so we don't exclude our celiac friends from unity with the rest of us when we take communion. We don't have the same cultural reservations about headgear that the Corinthians did. But we do understand that the church is not a place for disrespectful, divisive behavior. We're a body of his people here. We need to act like it. Paul's thrust in this chapter with both issues, what God has committed first in the Corinthian context and now in words that endure for us today is that our church, let's say our local church, our community church, is a body of believers and we are to build up one another in esteem and to edify one another and unify one another. And to do that together with Christ as our head, as our source from which we all flow. He died on the cross to unify us as his body, to bring us blameless and forgiven before the throne of God. We must be mindful of how divisive we can be over issues, however small, and how that will reflect back on him to the world. And how close and devoted to one another we can become when we pursue his likeness in harmony. 
as our Lord himself said, the world will know that we are his disciples by how we love one another. That's the message of 1 Corinthians 11. Let's pray. Father God, you are the reason we are here. You are the one who sent your son, who secured for us the forgiveness of sins, who bid us to gather together in your name and to live life together as a body of your people, as a community for you. Help us to do that in a way that honors you. Help us to live with the desire for church unity. Let us understand the issues upon which we must take a stand and those that we can let by. Give us judgment on the difference between conviction and preference. And show us each time we meet how better to honor one another by extending your affection and decency and love to one another so that the whole world can see us and know that we are a body of your disciples and that we seek the glory of our Savior before anything else. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.